Hi, good evening. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the curator of modern and contemporary art here at the National Academy Museum. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming out on this uh, not so nice evening. Um, it's wonderful to see everybody here. Uh, I just would like to say that the Academy is currently undergoing a major renovation of all of its public spaces. And it's very exciting because all of our galleries and the two entrances, on one on Fifth Avenue and one on 89th Street, are being completely renovated. The renovations will be complete in mid-September, so um, please stay tuned, and we look forward to seeing you in the fall. Um, as you can see on the screen, the next review panel is May 6th, and that will be the final one of the season. Um, so I hope to see you all there for that. Now I'd like to introduce the moderator of the review panel and our partner, David Cohen. David is the editor and publisher of artcritical.com, and David will introduce tonight's panelists. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Marshall. And please let me take a moment to, to thank the National Academy. I think I was just mentioning to Carmen Brannigan, the director of this institution, how really touched we all are that when the museum is shuttered, nonetheless, the, when the museum is dark, the lights go up for criticism. So that's uh, a sign of an institution that has its head screwed on the right way, and other institutions should take note of their priorities. So <laughs> thank you, thank you, Carmen. Thank you, Amy Zaltzman, who is the point person here, and Graham White, who is our recording engineer. I should mention that, uh, those of you who don't know it, the panel is recorded and later podcast at artcritical.com, where you can hear um, an archive of recordings going right back to our first installment some seven years ago, I believe, in the stone room just behind where Amy is standing now, that small marble hall with those classical figures contained heated debate between Maureen Mullarkey, Ken Johnson, Jerry Saltz, and myself in the very first review panel. Feels like a historic occasion. As, of course, we hope tonight will be. Let me introduce tonight's panelists. They are David Carrier, who is a regular contributor at Art Critical. David is the Champney Family Professor, a position that's shared between Chase Western Reserve University and the Cleveland Institute of Art. He's the author of numerous books on art theory and criticism and on painting and other arts. Um, and he's currently working on a book on abstract painting. Um, Ava Diaz is Assistant Professor of Art History at Pratt Institute. Uh, she's a regular contributor to Art Forum, um, and her writings in the past have also been seen at, uh, well, she has a, room, a piece in the current issue of Grey Room, the journal uh, put out by the um, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and uh, her writings have been seen in numerous other journals, including Art Bulletin and Modern Painters magazine. And my third guest this evening, Marjorie Wellish, is a practicing artist. Uh, she actually has a exhibition, an exhibition currently on view um, at the Denison University Museum in Ohio. 
perhaps our regular writer in Cleveland, Ohio, will make it over to Denison University Museum, Ohio, to check it out. Um, uh, Marjorie is also a distinguished uh, critic and um, scholar, and she teaches at the MFA programs at um, uh, Brooklyn College, uh, Columbia, and Pratt. And um, quite inadvertently, um, and peculiarly, really, all things considered, when I was putting this series together, I did not know that I would be um, a visiting uh, lecturer at the Pratt Institute. And here's Marjorie Wellish from the Pratt Institute. Here's Ava Deas from the Pratt Institute. It's the Pratt evening. And we will... I promised myself I would not mention that Pratt in British English has the unfortunate connotation um, of, of, of meaning something that's not entirely inappropriate to April Fool's Day. So obviously the stars were aligned for, for Pratt tonight. So who is new to the review panel? Who's here for the first time? Right, that's quite a number. And in fact, I believe it also uh, is a compliment that extends to half the people on this panel. So welcome to Ava and Marjorie, newcomers to the review panel. Just a quick rundown then on the format, how we proceed. Um, we've prepared little PowerPoint presentations as visual reminders of exhibitions that we hope most of you have been able to see. Who's seen two or more of the exhibitions we're talking about tonight? Okay, great. Who's seen one exhibition that we've seen, seen talking about tonight? Okay, well, uh, good. So the PowerPoints are, are much needed then. So we'll just... Um, uh, you will, of course, hopefully be so stimulated by this evening's discussion as to run along to Chelsea um, or the Lower East Side um, or to the West Village. It's rather geographically spread um, menu this evening. Um, menu being an operative word. Um, so we will show little PowerPoints for each show before we discuss that show. And after we've tackled as a panel a couple of exhibitions, it'll be a chance for audience members to let off steam, to share comments, criticisms, questions. Then we repeat the exercise for the other two shows that we're looking at. Yes, thank you very much, Karen. And the fact that actually we just sneaked a, a peak view of uh, Rearcrit Tiravanit is in fact maybe not totally inappropriate um, to mention that just as it's the coincidence that we have three Pratt associates um, here with us this evening, um, we've also, again, unintended, unplanned, um, we have, uh, we, we kick off the evening with a discussion of uh, one <coughs> exhibition where you go into the, you went to the, perhaps to the website for that show and saw a photograph of the veteran artist, uh, Alison Knowles, with a beaming acolyte, Rikrit Tiravanit, um, as it were, sitting at her feet, uh, sort of in, uh, 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 not, not literally, but um, uh, metaphorically, one, one feels. David, um, uh, Alison Knowles, very much known for performance and also for involvement with, um, with, with activities which are, in, in a way, a kind of forerunner to what has come to be called or come to be labelled relational aesthetics. It's uh, something of a novelty for her, isn't it, to see an exhibition entirely devoted to relatively traditional uh, media in, in that it's sculpture, um, 
fixed objects, found objects. Um, how did you find her show, and did you did it uh, tally in any way with expectations based on knowledge of her past mm. contribution? I saw it twice, and it's interesting that comparison. The first time, a few weeks ago, I was very taken. I thought this was sort of the world of early Rauschenberg. Maybe I was thinking of that big Gagosian show, and I was very. I thought it was very lovely. Today, maybe because I started earlier in the day with it, I focused on the words. And I started to realize that there are words in everything, including little red labels on those you know, strings on, that are on the left, and constructions. And the words distracted me. I thought, well, they're sort of cute, they're fun, but... Mm. But I, I thought it was a wonderful show. I just, it's interesting that there was that modest shift in my perception. Yes, the language, Marjorie, made me think that it, it bounced, it sort of leapfrogged back over uh, more recent, say, Arte Povera or uh, other precedents for uh, scruffy found objects to, to, the, to the Dada Surrealist tradition with uh, art and language coming together. Is that something that resonated with you? Um, not in the way you would think. Uh, Fluxus is her Knowles's tradition, by which is meant an insignificant gesture to counteract monumental system-based system art. My concerns with her current show uh, taking into account an aesthetics of passivity and receptivity to phenomena as they exist was that the sh show was too aesthetic. Hmm. Uh, the strings were fine because they did not plea for beauty. But uh, inconclusive were most of the other works for the following reason, I thought. That they, I'm, I'm searching for a word that I had had in my head. Um, indecisive, that's it. They were intellectually indecisive because of their bid for composition and for aesthetic value. If I were to, and I'm a I'm a follower of some Dadaist and certainly sabotage within the art world interests me. And Arta Povera is very, very radical in at its best, whereas Fluxus is a kind of playful, insouciant gesture, not as radical as it pretends. Um, if I were to find a form for her formlessness, I would say that those objects should not be framed as though they were paintings, nor should they be composed as though they were Joseph Cornell's exquisite, nonsensical, poetic lyrics, <coughs> but perhaps put in a box, put in a kitchen, kitchen drawer, heaped on the floor, thrown against the wall, because these were found objects. Their status as detritus is compromised. 
but uh, yes, that's an interesting, very fascinating uh, uh, critique. Except I would I would suggest, Ava, um, that um, if you if you don't, um, well, not it's not a it's not a disagreement necessarily with Marjorie's uh, critique, but if you don't find a framing device for the found object, then it, it remains an object to be found. That may be a good thing, that, an, uh, that uh, in other words, the, the, the work of finding the object is not done and finished by the artist because it's been put into a framed piece, but is there to be found again uh, by, by the viewer. D did you feel, uh, as Marjorie seems to be hinting, that um, there's, there's a betrayal of some of the fluxus ideal in the aestheticism of this exhibition? Or did you feel that was, that's okay and this is moving in the right direction? Um, in certain ways, I agree that there was a loss of some of the performativity of her work in these static framed objects. And when I was talking to the dealer, James, he had um, an object on the, you know, his desk that was this wonderful baseball that was, it said, keep practicing from the Buddha. And it was some found thing that she just, you know, picked up. And it had this very strange, of course, enigmatic quality of like the Buddha telling you to practice, you know, your fastball. But, um, but he said that, you know, this, in contrast to the other ones, it was um, encased in this um, handmade paper that Allison had made, and then it had these little poetic tags talking about the warm sun and made me think of, you know, playing baseball in the summer, and she depended that. And he said, you know, this is a nice... I mean, that it, I liked that, that it was something that you could touch. And he said, this is partly, you know, what... And I think he was, in a way, admitting that the change from the ephemeral object and, and, and using some of the same techniques of fluxus production, such as, you know, sort of detritus and the everyday object, but once you make it wall-bound and you can't touch it, it loses some of this sort of wonderful quality of, of figuring it out a little bit more. And I guess she was, in certain ways, I would compare the, the wall-bound framed objects to, you know, it seemed like it was going for a kind of David Cornell arrangement of things that have a very um, sort of reliquary, you know, quality. She finds these um, these uh, shoe soles and this this sort of sense of the you know this the lost object um, and that she finds and repurposes. But somehow, you know, I really enjoyed that one little enigmatic baseball object more than mm -hmm. a lot of the other things in the show. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, in conversation, you know, about that, it really did feel like the tactility, you know, something just about being able to handle it. And I think we lose that with sculpture, you know, all the time. We're not allowed to touch it, but I think it's nice that there's still an element of her work that allows us to, to yes. encounter. So, David, your objection to words, is it that, I mean, Joseph Scornell's name has come up a couple of times mm. now. Do you think it's that, um, that, that uh, she doesn't do it as well as Cornell and that the words just don't fit well with her particular objects? Or do you think that uh, introducing poetry just confounds uh, the, the value of what she's doing, or what, 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 at what I level guess, do you... I guess I thought the words. words were too obvious. I had this passing thought that if only she was German, and I couldn't quite follow it, maybe it would have looked better. I'm not sure, you know. But I think that the reference to Cornell is interesting, but let me offer a further thought, which is that in relation to Marjorie's comment, that maybe the show looks different on the Lower East Side, where the objects are closer to the street or the remains of the old street than it would in Chelsea, let alone if it was in this neighborhood. There was something, the grittiness about it was sort of appropriate to that setting. I mean, but I don't, I'm not sure how that works. I mean, that's a 
I think merger is a really tricky point about how do you put something in the context because after all it has to have a certain gallery status no I mean just to be in the gallery to, to be fair about the frames Marjorie they're not uh, they're not neat they're not frames supplied by a framer they're very they're, they're tea stained uh, irregular rough wood and they because they're not glazed the connotations are for me they were less like uh, frames and more like trays they felt like uh, a tray of uh, breakfast that had been found its way sort of vertically to the wall I was I was actually talking about I was actually taking the pieces seriously when I found that their compositional tendencies worked against their own primary meaning. Thus, I would put the trays on the table or on the floor. Yeah. Think of, think of Arta Povera. Think of 112 Green Street. Think of, there are many, many options here. Think of the Betty Parsons Gallery. There are ways of de- dealing with this. Yes. And what about the language, Marjorie? Do you, do you feel that was the, the, the poetry? It, was it poetic, the use of the, these, the truisms? No. Almost uh, yes. Jenny Holzer-like, aren't they? The shoe fits, put it on, that sort of thing. It's yes. not exactly... No, I, I thought... Well, there's a particular sensibility Alison Knowles has that has to be taken into account that may answer the question once said. Um, Knowles tends to be whimsical. When I've seen her performances, there is a certain insouciance that, and charm that is at once uh, sweet uh, and also, one might even say, depending on one's um, endorsement of Fluxus, one might say that the charm has to do with disarming those who would think that Art is inconsequential. In other words, it's a kind of uh, homopathic (laughs) device, you know. But that having been said, no, the words did not work for me. They were too, uh, you know, charming. Um, I I think that she has done amazing work. I mean. I am flashing forward to our next discussion, and her name will come up again yes. for how early. A pioneer. Uh, um, <laughs> not only Fluxus, but Arda Povera um, and Dada, and earlier still, f- food and performance have been used to assert the community priorities over the art world priorities. And we should keep that in mind. That's where her contribution is, I think. Yes, it's ironic that, as it were, the, 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 the soup bowl has been seized from her hands, Ava. Do you feel this is, this is uh, not doing her full justice, the show? How, how do you feel that it... Um, I mean, I think that something may be lost when the gift economy element of Fluxus is not present and when the work um, assumes a more traditional form of, in this case, a sellable object, which um, is unusual for Alison Knowles. And I think, you know, again, not to hint too much into the Rick Grit discussion, but I think, you know, that sense of the artwork as participating in a kind of social... Um, 
um, you know, a social gift, you know, was, was something that, you know, that I do, in a way, miss. But I think the, this kind of work, you know, you can't compartmentalize people's careers too much, you know, only very recently. Of course, Alison Knowles was uh, re-performing works at the MoMA and doing her, um, you know, her everyday lunch piece as a mm-hmm. sort of, you know, free mm-hmm. performance um, to feed people at the MoMA if you signed up in time, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which I didn't. But, um, but, you know, so there's different elements to an artist's career, and I think that this, you know, making things and, and this interest in, a, in form is, um, you know, it's, I don't think it's something that, you know, we can disparage, I guess, in someone who has a very rich, you know, and long career doing other things, too. Um, but I guess we can figure out if it's good. <laughs> as good as the other stuff. I mean, you know. Um, and I think, you know, again, I, I like the tactility of, and I think the object that I described was meant to be touched. It wasn't just, you know, something that you sort of back room thing. In fact, many of these galleries in Lower East Side don't really have proper back rooms anyway. Um, but it, but just, you know, I, I think that that is a difference, and I think the strength mm-hmm. would be more in the sharing of the object and the, um, and the sense of being able to, you know, to, mm-hmm. to have some kind of tangible relation as opposed to... Mm-hmm. There know, was one piece that, had, uh, that startled me a little because it, it, it had a little telecommunications jack stuck to it, a little in bright synthetic mm-hmm. green, and it, I thought, oh, at last, because the, 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 mm-hmm. po- mm-hmm. the poverty, in mm-hmm. quotes... Was to me um, a very receipt, such a, a given. It's 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 there's such a long illustrious history now of, of scruffy brown things, whether it's tapies or boys or a sight Wombly, the 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 artful distress. It seemed to be um, trading in something a little a little stale. So Ava, it was great in those photographs just before the video to be able to see starving members of the proletariat gathering at the. Gavin Brown Enterprise there, to be fed. I, um, one's fear would have been that the, the phot- photograph might have shown um, uh, well-heeled Williamsburg and East Village resident um, art world groupies, but, uh, but no. Um, what is the politics of this whole venture, or is it just aesthetics? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, we can probably only, in this context, touch on the recent debates, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, um, about relational aesthetics and about whether it's a compensatory gesture in the absence of a robust public sphere or if it is a kind of joining of gathering of the tribes and of people being able to extend community um, uh, to use art as... um, as, as a kind of platform for communication, which in a certain way I think we would all agree is an aspiration of almost every kind of artistic practice. But um, I think with this, you know, I, I liked the show, and but I, I did feel that the soup kitchen part was, I mean, it's, it's a difficult question because one has to walk through the space in a way to understand how it was organized and, and the sense that, at least that I had when I first went, um, that I knew that there was a soup kitchen part, but I didn't know where it was. So that already kind of made me feel like, as an interested art goer, I was a little curious about, you know, how does one navigate this um, space, which was deconstructed in ways. There were um, brick walls uh, or cinder block walls put up that separated the office part of the gallery from the space in which you saw the T-shirt and then this other um, uh, 
cube that was inserted that were, was a replication of the space where he first did his um, making Thai food back in, um, at 303 Gallery when it was in Soho. And they, he had taken all of the walls out, so it was an open space to the street. Now, that wasn't where the soup kitchen was. It was almost a, sort of on the next block on Washington, if Gavin Brown you usually enter on Greenwich. So there was a kind of spatial disorientation, I think, that didn't, um, didn't benefit one just coming in and being fed. I mean, you really had, there was no press releases or anything, or no paperwork of any kind mm-hmm. in the open space. So, um, you know, and I, I don't mean to quibble with that because, you know, I, I do feel like I was trying to find it and had a hard time and actually ended up having to be told later where that was. So maybe, you know, that gets into some of the, you know, um, accusations against relational aesthetics that it's kind of insidery. I mean, yes. um, but I think, you know, the soup is good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's gaining reputation or has a good reputation for, um, you know, daily offerings that bring people, at least in the neighborhood, in for a, a buck, um, a pop, bowls. But, um, yeah, so I think, you know, and, and I do feel, I don't, you know, I don't want to be needlessly, you know, quibbling or attacking a show that I thought was overall really very interesting. But, you know, this, it does enter, at least in my mind, it's into some of these debates about what, um, you know, who is the audience of relational aesthetics and what are the effects of that kind of work. And, and to be fair to Rick Ritt, you know, and I'm, it, relational aesthetics is not his nomination of this work. Of course, it was Nicholas Boryod's um, now infamous book from 1999 that classified certain artists like Rick Ritchie of Anisha, Pierre Huig, and others as relational aesthetics. And they've been kind of living under that moniker for some time. And, and um, so you can't generalize about that whether yes. it's a pseudo-movement based just on Rick Ritt's work. But I think it does enter into some of those yes. um, contradictions. <laughs> yes, Marjorie, I, I can attest to the same sort of frustration and, you know, this Oliver Twist-like um, experience of trying to get my bowl filled because uh, <laughs> the first time I went, okay, where's the soup? You know, and the T-shirts and gold casts. The second time I thought, well, I'll go late at night because that's when, you know, starving peasants really need soup most. And uh, the kitchen was, it said, no soup. And um, a security guard who I did not envy for having to sit in the freezing cold with space heaters to keep her warm so that she could keep um, other people from spraying graffiti on the walls of Gavin Brown uh, in its windowless state uh, told me that to come back between around noon and six. So I shall try again tomorrow for a bowl of soup. Um, where are we really with, with Rick Ritt? Never mind other so-called relational aestheticians and, and his relationship to it. Um, what is what value is, is is does does he bring? Um, let me um, attempt an answer to your wonderful question. Um, uh, anecdotally, for the, for the moment, it bears upon this directly. Um, in 1997, I was a line item in an institutional grant that allowed me to go to Wurz, Poland, uh, as an artist in residence at the Artist Museum there. I had received the go-ahead and then heard nothing, except do come, and then nothing. And I thought, oh great, I'm going to end up 
in a hotel room of some sort, a worker's hotel, doing my drawings and paintings without communication at all. Uh, I wasn't very optimistic about this um, artist's exchange, but I went. And to cut a, a long story short, for the sake of this panel, uh, eventually I came to uh, what had been a seized uh, estate and uh, um, was admitted, whereupon I saw Richard Vosko and he was preparing some dinner and some artists were there. And I looked at him and almost the first words I said to him were, so what do we think of Gordon Maddox-Clark's food? He <laughs> grinned and said, soup. And we had an exchange going already. In other words, again, getting, going back to, and bringing in Alison Knowles, which I'm about to do momentarily. Mm -hmm. The reallocation of <coughs> social forces around food is a universal language. It gets updated and recycled. Uh, I would say probably the first soup kitchens were at least 40,000 years old, a little before my time. But um, Alison Knowles made a salad in 1962, and the length of making a salad was the length of her performance. Her salad days. Her salad days. <laughs> Very good. Charlotte Mormon, always in her salad days. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, was an organizer of the avant-garde festival to which John Cage, Alison Knowles, Nam June Paik made contributions. In 1973, one of these avant-garde festivals was held on platforms 33 and 34 in Penn Station. That is a public engagement. And I don't know whether soup was made, but I remember the bread that was given out freely. It was actually purple and white, so I remember it a lot. It was made by human beings, I gather. Um, and there were performances, as well as other things. And indeed, the cooperative food organized by um, Tina Gerard, Suzanne Harris, Gordon Matta Clark, which in certain ways disappeared into Soho, was more self-effacing than the spectacle, however insouciant uh, Rick Witt's piece is, gives me a perspective, David, on, yeah. on soup kitchens as a mode of engagement. And what I want to say, you know, with, after all this fuss and feathers, is that we think of a catalog of soup kitchen events or f gift food as gifts yes. and how the contexts have changed for each of these. Right, exactly. So uh, David Carey, I mean, I'm thinking of Leo Steinberg's uh, incessant last supper. There needs to be a, a postscript <laughs> to it. The incessant, the incessant fluxus uh, soup, soup kitchen event. Um, but on the one hand, it, it's, it's, it's encouraging because 
the more painting there is, the more possibility there is yeah. for attraction, yeah. or criticism. Yeah. You can say, well, this painting is better than that painting, or Rick Rick's soup is better than Alison's soup, or so on and so forth. But on the other hand, of course, it's a sort of... It, at one level, it's a da-da gesture, and you can't paint more than one moustache on the Mona Lisa. So um, where do you stand? Is, it, is, it some, is, there, is there still life in the soup kitchen? As, or, or basically, in other words, the, 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 the giving of food as uh, an art world um, gesture? Or is it just an epitome of how uh, what, what, what start as, as fresh gestures soon become, you know... I feel as if here, packet. David, that... You know, for the second time tonight, I mean, my ignorance is a kind of bliss. I didn't know the history. It's a little too Oh, yes, we haven't had a script. We've never had this in a review panel. The striptease can only be brief, but I was... The first... Well, it is cold. Uh, This won't stay long, sorry. The first time I was there, I was one over. My only regret was the the slogan about I to am a lesbian. What about, oh, I can't. I can't quite. There was the one about the lesbian. I couldn't quite pull that off. Oh, I wanted that one, yes. Yeah. Only you knew how much I wanted to be a lesbian, yes. Yeah, I couldn't quite do that. Today, my only regret, I had a long talk. It's interesting with the grad students making the shirts, and you can learn how many they make. It's all fun. Was that. I'd already had lunch, and so I only had a little soup. The soup was good. But, I mean, uh, you know, I was naive. I mean, I'm fascinated with Marjorie's history, and, I mean, I see how the, the show would look very different if you were aware of the history because, again, I approached it. I don't know, it would be like saying, oh, Ryman, has he shown before a nice new work? I mean, that was mm, yes. my sense to this. It's cold. Yes, put, put your shirt back. The gesture is very well appreciated. Of course, it's... Um, he, uh, as you point out, there's, there's T-shirts as well as soup. And also there's a third component, which, David, I think as, a, as an author of a book on Andy Warhol, you might be particularly well qualified to uh, <coughs> mention. Um, and that is those um, bronze cast um, objects once used, as Ava mentioned, in uh, an early uh, collaboration with Warhol in a, a meticulously reconstructed yeah. porter cabin of the... I think it's got uh, Brown's first space or something. What you know? Um, does that help, what, or where does that fit? Where, how does that? How does it all add up to get? To, how does it all add up? Because the soup kitchen is one component. Yeah, that's, that's an extraordinarily interesting question. That again we face twice, just, and we're going to face because we're going to get to more words in a minute here. That what kind of even you see for critics here? How much context you have to bring? I mean. Do you have to know about Flux's performances? Maybe if you know more, he says, than I do, you'll like the show less. And similarly here, I don't, I don't have any answer to that. I think it's a wonderfully challenging question. And I, it's interesting to me how the divergence of response in part depends simply on knowledge there. Well, it, it seems to me, let me throw this open to all, all, all the guests here, that uh, you, you, come, you come to a, a gallery, one of the hip galleries. It's recently expanded. It's got sumptuous, incredible space uh, the windows are taken out, it's freezing cold, um, it's open day and night. And there are these very discreet, but somehow, because they're, because they're uh, rather minimal within this uh, cavernous space, um, 
discrete but demanding somehow to be related yeah. one to the other, experiences a soup kitchen next door, that uh, a cabin, a room where you can print T-shirts and the slogans are on the wall, yeah. another room where there are these uh, exquisite sort of bronze casts of found <laughs> objects, and then let's not face, forget the whole, the whole space. Uh, uh, fear eats the soul, uh, emblazoned in uh, graffiti around the whole uh, uh, space, and those uh, very sort of cutely uh, impoverished kind of little stools and things to eat off, etc. Um, sort of intimations of different things going on, but one of them is certainly is, uh, you know, bourgeoisie, watch out, you know, behold your future executioner. This is, um, is he poking fun at um, the uh, aspirations the old, of the old left, or is he the son of a Thai diplomat, an old lefty himself? Um, you know, whenever politics comes up, I want to know, okay, what are your politics? So um, is the politics just another aesthetic component, or is the aesthetics part of a bigger politics? Um, I'm going to jump in and yeah. say, and say uh, I cross-examined the cooks, and I said, and who is the demographic? Only I didn't use the word demographic. I know better than that. I said, and who's coming by here? Oh, art world people. I said, are strangers coming by? Some. Are street people coming by? Very few. So that gave me one answer I needed to know. Another is that it's a very expensive installation with a state-of-the-art kitchen, I might add, and um, it takes a lot of money to blow out those windows. Uh, this is not a Michael Asher show at the clock tower, although Michael Asher's art of space and light is definitely um, on Rickwert's mind. He happened to be there when I was there and I cross-examined him. And we spoke about, yes, because it isn't, it, it was obvious to me. Uh, uh, Asher and um, Gordon Matta-Clark, of course. And he said, yes, Gordon Matta-Clark was on his mind. I mean, the, the, shall we say, the intertext was very obvious, but it was an art world intertext for me. Uh, I mean, I happened to, you know, know some of this stuff. So it was like, the, you know, the top 40 hits as far as I was concerned. You know, uh, and he was spinning a few platters. And I, from the vinyl age, was having a very good time. But I wondered whether this was a social, what kind of social intervention it was. I mean, that, that gets back to, and I think this show doesn't propel some of those questions um, that critics have had about relational aesthetics very far away from <laughs> the, the way they've already been um, uh, discussed. It, it really is kind of hitting a lot of the same notes. And in fact, a few years ago at David's Warner, there was a Thai kitchen that, um, that was a repetition of, the again, that same 303 gallery show that was Rickard's first one in which... He was not cooking there, but um, but others were, and in that case, it was totally free, not a dollar for the soup. But um, so I mean, this is you know this is something that he continues to do and will continue to 
you know, figure out who the community, you know, trying to figure out who the community to which this is addressed is. But I, I wouldn't want to criticize its attempt to, um, to sort of open up issues of redistribution in a way. I mean, that, that perhaps there's something about art that can be um, a gift without strings attached and whether or not we, you know, how to publicize that given that um, it's, it's really difficult to have, for artists to, to feel like they have play in the culture of, you know, of, of sort of mass culture industry or entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so I think trying is not to be... Um, you know, I just can't criticize him for trying, but you know, the effects sometimes show that communities do exist around certain kinds of practices. People who want to see art will go and see this kind of work, and, and you're not just going to find and invent an entirely new community out of nowhere. I mean, there has to be some kind of predilection on the part of a viewer or an interest to go see something, to, to find something new. I don't know how to you know, explode that and to find... You know, to to have everyone in the world know about it, unless you somehow fall into the spectacularization machine that, or the sort of success de scandale that mm-hmm. is the rare moment often that an artwork is, I guess you could say, elevated or you know, or not into the you know a really truly public understanding. And I, I don't think that that's part of Rickert's, not to invoke Buddha again, but his very sort of you know his very beatific you know attitude is, is sort of all welcome but I don't think he's interested in making a, and I'm not trying to speak for him but it doesn't seem like trying to you know self-publicize to some level of you know spectacularization is his game either so how do we find out about shows and how do we go see them he can't reinvent people's interest in you know or desires to go see art he can't you know he can't well, yes, yeah. this is that's, that's a noble point, well taken. But saying, oh, we can't fault him for trying, um, uh, I, I would take issue with that. I mean, it's a bit like you can't fault Marie Antoinette for trying with her model farm. I mean, it's... Um, uh, you, I think if somebody... Um, I, I, I don't think he was trying to um, feed the poor and it didn't quite work. I think he was trying to feed the rich with some sure. art and a, in, a, in a gesture. Sure. I think it's just art. It is sure. just art. So therefore, I don't criticize it. I don't think we should criticize it as soup. I think we should criticize it as art. Um, in, mm-hmm. in other words, um, okay, he's making soup, but obviously we're not going to say, okay, the pad thai was good, but the... and the needed more salt in the lentil soups. No, of course, that would be ridiculous. Um, right. but, but it's equally it's equally ridiculous to say, yeah. well, yeah. Yeah. at least he yeah. tried. Yeah. So yeah. theoretically, yeah. if you were a sort yeah. of starving homeless man on West House, West Halston Street, and yeah. you were lucky, yeah. you could find out about uh, Tiravan. It is not for them. I mean, it'd be, it'd be wonderful if there was something like the final scene from. Uh, Bunuel's movie Viridiana, where the where this saintly, um, uh, beautiful uh, Sylvia Pinal character, who who just wants to share her inheritance with local tramps, ends up being, well, see the movie. Um, but uh, we, we don't get anything like that at all, do we? This is uh, it's not. You say we should not fault him for trying. Trying what? What's he? What's his agenda? What's I, mean, his I think agenda, you, really? you know just to respond. I don't. I mean, I think trying to open up some notion of community beyond, you know, what um, what our normal relationship, I guess, our normative relationship to art is that we sort of consume it, um, 
you know, in, we consume it, I'm not even going to say visually, because of course there's all different kinds of experiences of art, but that there's something that separates, um, you know, I don't know, that there, there's something ephemeral about that kind of work in which what is actually being consumed is more egalitarian. There isn't just an or, you know, singular object and that some person buys it and then it's squirreled away in a collection, but that there is a kind of openness of, of the practice to, yeah. you know, the object, you know, it's not dematerialized. It's actually, you know, still in a material form. It's just exchanged in a different way. And I think that that, that does open up new ways of thinking about what art can be. Um, it's not entirely new. I mean, we're tracing it to, I mean, Alison Knowles in 1962, in addition to make yeah. a salad, did proposition make a soup. I mean, you know, it's what Marjorie's saying. It's not entirely new, but, you know, there's still something about trying to Expand what you know, what we consider the art object, and to push the parameter to you know to many more people being able to have an art experience. As yeah, opposed no, to I, just I think the yeah, I mean, I think the critical point is well taken. I guess here is with the previous discussion, I would historicize it. I mean, the East Village galleries thirty years ago were kind of storefronty places. I remember Nature Mort or something, and now they're posh and they're just smaller versions of what you find in Chelsea. And so, in a sense. Any attempt to go back to a past, I mean, here's Gordon Mata Clark's, you know, Soho before it was the gallery world, before it ceased to be the gallery world and became the clothing world. I mean, there's going to be a certain artificiality. It's like having a a 40-year-old car and driving it around. I mean, in a sense, it's going to look like a museum piece. That's inescapable, and maybe that's then the source of starting reflection on it. I mean, an issue to that comes to my mind, Marjorie, uh, but uh, it's, it's too big a, a, a cross for Rickrit to uh, bear alone, is why is it that the art world, um, more than any other, the visual art world, the painting, sculpture, mm. etc. world, has borne the brunt of uh, dematerialization and uh, demanding that aesthetic experience uh, be opened up in the, to, to the philosophical kind of examination that a gesture like offering a soup kitchen instead of paintings and sculptures um, uh, uh, suggests um, to, to extend way more than any other field. I mean, even though literature produced Joyce and music produced Cage, Joyce and Cage were still pushing language and sound. But something about art, and uh, Rick Ritt as uh, a as a professor at uh, uh, Columbia and as an international star of the art world, sort of epitomizes uh, the fact that there's still, you know, the dematerialization of the art object was not just six years to be documented by Lucy Lepard, but is now in its fifth decade as something where there's still this anxiety in art about um, informing and pleasing the, the senses through stuff that's visual. Why? Um, I might disappoint you. I want to get back to something David Carrier said. Just down now, uh, having had a sh- uh, run at the Ronald Feldman Gallery, was a work I didn't see, but I, because I was not in town, but I know of the Harrison's work. Uh, um, uh, and they are not driving 40-year-old cars. They've been doing pro- research projects on ecosystems mm-hmm. since the 1970s, mm-hmm. and they continue to do that. The degraded environment is not, mm-hmm. um, shall we say, charming or old-fashioned, and they um, deserve a little bit more credit, I think, than and others 
who, who um, have decided that uh, if, we, if the art world is going to retread itself as some sort of cultural politics, then one of the options, and then it, it, this does go back to the sort of the crisis of the 60s, and, and I'll, I'll try to address your point, David, in a moment. Um, uh, if we as artists are also citizens of the world, then one option for us is to, in fact, not uh, be coy about our politics or our social engagement, but to do it. And that's where the collective food comes about and where the Harrisons, and where, to some extent, Alan Capra uh, also was heading when he dropped the term happenings for the term activities and tried as far as he could, uh, though that also has an asterisk, to uh, not do something as if it were a work, but as a work, a work. And the politics of that is not for everyone. But in literature, for instance, uh, Rokosi and Reznikov and some of the objectivists mm -hmm. and William Carlos Williams in his own way try to create a poetics of the everyday, and I don't mean pop art here, I mean of, of the, the language of work. And Wordsworth was on the case too, by the yes. way, you know, a century before. Yes, but I mean institutionally, I'll just, we'll bring in the audience soon, because this is obviously one of the big issues mm -hmm. uh, in aesthetics, but institutionally, um, David, um, if, if you were a rock musician, and you went to a club and said, um, I, I'm beyond you know, electric guitar and drums, mm -hmm. I'm gonna serve soup. Um, the, 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 impresario, <laughs> the, the impresario would just say, great, keep me a bowl, but actually we're gonna be yeah. playing some music yeah. tomorrow night, so I'll get another band. And, and similarly, if you went to a publisher and said, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. uh, enough words already, um, yeah. just announce in your yeah. brochure that I'm gonna right. make soup. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be printed. I mean, what is there to print? So institutionally, some, there's some anxiety that, that is very specific to painting and sculpture that doesn't pertain to uh, literature um, or, or to music. But I just, let me jump in. I mean, Bedin, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, back to Flexus. I mean, that, there was a refusal at certain times in the interest of inserting a different kind of politics in someone using their celebrity, celebrity to do something else. So, you know, maybe just to mix it up with the musician mm -hmm. refusing to play, yeah. it's happened before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, and because they're celebrities rather than yeah. just musicians, they can um, lend their celebrity to the activity, but yeah. then go back to making yeah. some more music. Yeah, I think this extraordinary incident, let me displace the question slightly and play it back as a question that I suppose it's inevitable looking at both of the artists here that mid-career artists will keep building on what they did earlier. This is, I mean, if they were painters or sculptors, the same thing we would expect. So then the real question, I guess, for us is, is our culture in 2011 all about nostalgia and recycling? Uh, you know, the rock equivalent, people say, well, we do these, there's a Chinese group that does Rolling Stones, early Rolling Stones, and it's quite right. cute. You say, here, they're, they're 28 in Beijing, and they, you say, well, that's not so interesting. Or are there, you see, 28-year-old artists who are doing completely different things that are mm. the young 
yeah. equivalence. That would be, I think, the challenge. Absolutely. I think we've raised some big questions here, and it's, a, it's only fair and right to bring in the audience, that it's good that, they can, that the audience can also address uh, Knowles, uh, Tiravarnit, both together, or the issues that have come up. There was a lady. Wait, if you would, for the mic, please. Karen will bring the mic. Uh, third row towards the end there. Thank you. Um, I, was, I was wondering um, if anyone could um, address the uh, title, Fear Eats the Soul, as in relation to Fassbinder and the German that was in German, it was um, in poor German. The title was originally um, for the movie was in bad German, which made Fassbinder a, an outsider. And I wondered what that has to do with this whole right. thing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. We'll, we'll keep the question in mind. We won't drop it, but we'll take more comments and questions um, from, from the... Yes, Chris? No, I, I just want to suggest, David, that that actually is precisely the question. If it's referencing Fear Eats, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, the 1974 film, that film is precisely about the discomfort felt by a middle-class, uh, middle-aged woman, I believe, who falls in love with an Arab guest worker. So it's, the, it's what's going on here that you're all referring to is the discomfort felt by the disparity between the gesture and the setting. Mm, yeah, right. Right. And the artist is skillfully, knowingly exploiting that dislocation between uh, being with a swank gallery in uh, the West Village and sort of opening a soup kitchen. So it's a joke, or not a joke, but a, a critique in a way of the art gallery? Or is it uh, going beyond all that and saying, okay, so, so what, so, so panel, I mean, uh, or, or other members of the audience, what, what any, anybody want to jump in with Chris Lyons' um, suggestion there, that, that actually the, the Fassbender element is, um, and the, 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 the ethic of, of Fassbender's movie uh, is, is sort of axiomatic? I was thinking about it in terms of the semantics of the title. His show, Rick Ritz, is Rick Ritz, colon, Ritz the Soul, which mm. to me implies a certain identification, mm. his part with the Moroccan, um, the, the black Moroccan that, um, that marries the, the German, the older German woman, and the kinds of um, you know, discrimination that they as a couple face, and he in particular faces. Um, I don't know if that um, is to Rickert's benefit <laughs> that um, that comparison in the title that he makes, at least to me, it seemed like the name, the substitution of the name there had some obvious um, implications about you know that character and, and Rickert's role. But I'm not sure if you know if yeah, I just don't quite know what to make of that in terms of you know where he sees himself in that as some kind of. Is that a kind of victimization thing, or I, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious in what other people might think about it, having seen the film. Right. It's amusing that it's the second um, exhibition, this review panel season, where um, uh, Fassbinder has uh, played a key role. We hmm. looked at the show of um, 
remind me of the name, the French. Uh, uh, no, no, uh, no. Never mind. It was a team gallery show where um, cross-dressers reenacted scenes from Kubrick and Fassbinder. Anyhow, good, but that's taking us off, off topic. So, um, yeah, any more comments on, on, on this subject or the, the, the two shows? Yeah, uh, just in relation to that point, I think the discomfort is, is for me, not so much about, you know, uh, maybe my own sense of, like, privilege, you know, when confronted with a work like Rickritz, as it is more about the sort of gap between the claims made on behalf of, you know, specifically relational aesthetics, specifically by Boriod, and what Rickritz's work achieves. So I think, like, Rickritz's work has been sort of done a disservice by Boriod in claiming that, and this is the central thing, that relational aesthetics works should be evaluated on the aesthetic basis of mm -hmm. what kinds of relations they produce. So mm -hmm. if you evaluate Rickert's work based on what kinds of relations are produced, you end up seeing like, oh, it reinforces relationships within an essentially insidery art world. So that, therefore, mm -hmm. you know, it fails its evaluation. Yes, yes. Um, so it's like if you, if you can separate it from Boryud's, you, know, mm -hmm. you know, evaluation schema, I think it could fare better. We've, we've seen, we've had decades of art that questions the politics of the art gallery space till we're all kind of, you know, really... Actually, if you turn this whole project around 180 degrees, the thing to do would be to go to the Bowery, to the mission, and um, set up a stand with art books or, um, uh, you know, sell memberships to the Whitney Museum and then see what effect that has because that would be doing it the other way around and that would certainly engender some new relations. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anybody else in the audience? Yes. Yeah, just a question uh, addressing David's uh, earlier point. Two Davids on the panel. So David yeah. Cohen, sorry. Okay. Um, the dematerialization of the art object. Question, do you think that mass production or um, the fact that music and literature lend themselves to mass production, publishing and recording. Does that have anything to do with uh, the fact that those things have not rejected their media? Whereas sculpture and painting seem to be philosophically in the last 50 years tending to do that more. Yes, I think that's a very valid point because the uh, uh, just in terms of economics, uh, literature, and popular music, although now uh, traumatized by electronic possibilities and uh, pirating and so on and so forth. But in the 20th century, uh, those mediums uh, had the mass market as its patron, and somehow, uh, you know, an almost medieval form of patronage persisted with painting and sculpture just because of the material circumstances of those objects. So I think that makes a lot of sense, and that might well be a plausible explanation as to why our merry little art world has um, taken upon itself the penance for um, uh, medieval patronage that these uh, other art forms hmm. have not. Maybe. I think it's, and I guess I'd like other people's response to this, maybe the two artists we've considered here, because they have this public dimension, this political dimension, this performance dimension, are more vulnerable than, let's say, 
to mid-career painters who are now showing in posher galleries. Maybe with the painting we'd say, well, this is a kind of natural move that the spaces have changed and so we know they're more expensive. Whereas there, with these artists, we feel there's this kind of interesting tension in the room that maybe just is the tension we all feel about the changes in the city and the, the sheer expensiveness of things. Maybe that's, is that the source of the feeling? It was very interesting to me. Yes, you're a little more hung up than the rest of us are, I think, about this whole issue of the gallery social status. Yeah. But, I mean, it's ironic to me older. also um, <laughs> that you know, we, we're in an age where yeah. public attendance of an increasing uh, number yeah. of museums yeah. is greater than it's ever been, and so that the art world yeah. should be sort of wallowing in um, a very old anxiety about yeah. excluding the masses when the masses are actually pounding on the door to get in, but not in order to... Um, if they're going to the Guggenheim, for instance, not in order to um, have Tino Segal have uh, mm -hmm. uh, little girls walk around talking about progress, but actually in order to see Kandinsky and Segal. Marjorie, uh, a quality that I've admired in your own work is the way systems of notation and structure sort of interplay with uh, visual language and uh, structural semiotic considerations, not to ask you to talk about your own work, but just to say it seems very appropriate to me to, art, to, to turn to you first in relation to this artist. Um, he's, he's doing something with ground plans of iconic skyscrapers to produce these, um, uh, these sculptures, these installations. Um, what, what sort of relationship does Navarro's work engender between um, uh, notations of structure and the actual experience, visual experience that we have in the gallery? Um, I may see the work somewhat differently than, than that, but I'll attempt to answer your question. Uh, I don't see these as ground plans, though the titles claim that and the press release does. Um, to tell the to clue in the audience, as they used to say, I'll say that um, the intention of the artist, which we shall bracket shortly, um, is uh, to show the footprint of major skyscrapers around the world in order to produce by I'm using a word that wasn't in the press release, I believe, kaleidoscopic means the question of whether this is utopia or, or Las Vegas, in other words, heaven or hell. Uh, I don't see there is much relation to the so-called intention, uh, of the intention to the effect, actually. That would be one answer I would give you. He, uh, the artist has assumed that the key term skyscraper subtends all tall buildings, and through that, a politics of globalization. Uh, one of the buildings is the Flatiron Building. I don't consider the Flatiron Building the enemy of the people. Um, I consider the Trump Tower the enemy of the people. I consider all the non-architecture that happens to be over one mile high or whatever it is, the enemy of architecture and all civilization, but never mind. Um, but what is relevant is that point that he, that the artist has conflated development 
capitalism and architecture. I don't believe they're so easily conflated, but the word skyscraper misleads us. And we think, if we're thinking with that key term, we think we, we sort of um, are drawn in seductively to a kind of uh, enlightenment model, you know the script, you know, um, uh, steel and the invention of elevators that would allow the skyscraper to be built, it's true, the elevator allowed the lift of people from the ground plan to many more stories than they could have achieved by walking. And so we can read from the script a kind of uh, apocalyptic scenario wherein the skyscraper and all technology has brought us to this pass. I don't go along with it. Ava, um, heaven or Las Vegas? (laughs) 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 I mean, I think the the word that Marjorie used, seduction, is is sort of key or I guess a hinge that that title itself you know with this seeming opposition it sort of does both right I mean if it's some kind of critique of technology it uses the tools of technology to make that critique which is this kind of neon you know and the the mise-en-abime of these mirrors creating this endless space and you know, it immediately reminded me of Kusama's Infinity Rooms, which had this, um, you know, the effect of, you know, putting the viewer in this space of, of a kind of free fall in a way that, you, you know, you're disoriented and there's a kind of pleasure in that sense of the void and void experience. So, you know, we all go, you know, we have our moments at Times Square, you know, or Las Vegas, where it's like that overwhelming of the sensorium of the spectator is a kind of pleasure of modernity. And I don't think that the artist is, um, is able to, you know, go very far on a critique of, you know, or, or really is it a very interesting one of, you know, technology, you know, using this kind of, you know, stuff that is like fully, you know, enriched with the seduction of the material. Um, you know, I, I was just, a, what I didn't like about it was the words. I, did, I thought that they were like, I mean, sway and these burden and... Um, shelter, abandon, decay. It, it felt like it was just over... You know, it, it was starting to sort of feel like, again, like this, it's trying to have its cake and eat it too with heaven and Las Vegas. It's like you can be, you know, you can have this, um, you know, this kind of sense that this stuff is, you know, like, know, that it's just this kind of bad, you know, technophilia. But, um, but you know, on the other hand, it is full of this... You know, kind of immersive potential that the viewer experiences of, you know, an endless vista that is very seductive. Right. Heaven was the name of a disco in London when I was growing up, so the title somewhat sort of threw me because uh, Heaven or Las Vegas. Well, okay, yes, Heaven, Las Vegas. Um, David, words again. The words seem to be plaguing our shows this evening. But yeah, what, they was are. that your main problem with the show, or did you enjoy the show? Where were you with Navarro? I thought there was an extreme disconnect between the objects, which were fascinating. And I had to look and look and even ask, I'm sorry, the poor woman at the desk and say, they're only that deep? Because, mm. and I wouldn't mind having one, I mean one of the small ones, not the flat iron, and Marjorie's right about that. But, and you see, and the, the objects are fascinating. You say there's a seductiveness, but the idea that you see that as it's presented in the brochure that it has some claim with global politics, you thought, well, come on, people. I mean, we're supposed to infer that 
everywhere, Republic of China and the mainland and New York, again, leaving out the Flatiron, where people can build a skyscraper, they're sort of similar. I don't really, I mean, they're similar in that they can put high buildings with fast elevators, but that doesn't seem to go very deep. I thought the most interesting thing was the Twin Towers, where those go into the floor. And I thought there, there was some kind of political idea. But I've never seen a show where the disconnect between the fascinating visual effect you see in the claims was more dramatic. I, I, where it was just this sort of, it's like they were two different worlds. I mean, you read the press release, release and I kept wandering through it and thinking, well, maybe the politics is going to kick in here or, or I need a drink or coffee or something. But they, it's like they were just in two spaces. There were the claims and there were these, you should say, these fascinating objects. I'd love to have one in the living room. It kind of goes out there and it opens the room. But it didn't, I couldn't make sense of the claims. The claims just seemed to be nonsensical. I'm a great enemy of any kind of Muzak in art spaces, and yet I was hungry for some, some, uh, <laughs> some mood song with these uh, pieces. Um, and I, I, in fact, to my shame, didn't read the press release until, and then um, I assigned some students uh, uh, to, to, to review one of the shows we're talking about tonight, and Somebody came up and started reviewing this. I thought, oh, my God, I missed the whole point. <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, just you know, to return to the heaven or Las Vegas, I mean, if we can think of the, I don't know, Denise Scott Brown, Robert Venturi line, that you know, this is this seduction of you know, this kind of architecture and this kind of decorated architecture, you know, neon and signage and all this that this show intimates to is we don't have to make that choice that there's heaven or hell there, that in a way it's, mm. it is kind of both, you know. Um, I don't know, again, and I agree with both David's, I guess that perhaps the show didn't push um, this, this sense of a, of a critique of um, whether it's corporate architecture or, as Marjorie said, the skyscraper is this kind of bad object of modernity that far, and perhaps we are just left with that. And I, and I think there's something, again, maybe this is why Kusama you know, has always interested me in this, this, you know, this mise en abime comparison that Ivan Navarro was making, I think, somewhat explicitly to Kusama, is that you know, I never quite knew what to make of that sort of psychedelic trip out experience of Kusama where it's like it is this possibility of you know sort of the artwork overriding the subject with its kind of splendor mm -hmm. and you know and, and her paintings Kusama's paintings do that too and I've always wanted mm -hmm. to to think more about that but I'm always the kind of phenomenology particularly of the of the infinity rooms that Kusama does is this you know, it is a very precarious feeling that you have as a viewer of, of being on this kind of precipice of, and I think that World Trade Center one as did that very much. This precipice of falling in to the artwork, yeah. and you know that the void would consume you, and that there's a kind of psychic um, charge, you know, like of, of sort of immersion as you know death or something. <laughs> the artwork can kill you somehow, but I don't, I don't, you know. And it, he works with that because of the darkness of the space and these, mm. you know, this kind of endless mirroring and this sense of the lot, like that your footing is lost. And I don't, you know, I, I think that that's a pleasure as much as mm. it's a fear, though. Yes. I, I was reminded a little also of uh, Jenny Holzer because of the way in which uh, a, a very impressive, high-tech, finessed 
um, experience was sort of underwritten by some kind of um, uh, agenda. Although with uh, Holzer, I don't feel that the uh, agenda is so um, explicit um, or political anymore, or perhaps ever was. I think there's some there's interesting politics in her work, but there's more of a that there isn't that disconnect that David was objecting to mm. between um, the professed ideology and the actual kind of frankly rather confected um, right, right. Um, or fun sort of disco type experience of the, of the work. And I mean just to check on one thing here I wonder following up Eva's point if the words don't almost interfere with the effect because the extent that these mm -hmm. these are powerful because they open up the room so dramatic. I mean they're like those you know old-fashioned trumpet paintings where there's a fly and you're yes. saying, is that a fly or is that a fly on the paint or whatever? But there's sort of a super version of that. But then the words, because the words are kind of floating there. The other thing is you can look in these and you can see yourself reflected, and that's mm -hmm. kind of fun. But I mean, fun, but I'm not sure that fun is what he wants in this context, right? I mean, that, that makes it sound more like the disco than a political yeah. critique, right? Well, if he doesn't have fun, then I think he's, he's got a problem. And if he does, I think he's onto something. We seem to have been fated this evening with uh, three, four exhibitions where um, the, the work takes some form of uh, material uh, form and where there's um, uh, an intellectual or a conceptual underwriting which uh, you need the press release, really, to uh, connect with. Although, Ava, I wonder if you'd agree with me that even if you didn't read about uh, Jacques Chartier's uh, explorations into uh, uh, endocrinology and um, DNA and what have you, that you'd still um, actually um, uh, get a very strong whiff of the laboratory, a kind of scientism coming across from these uh, paintings. The, the only... Uh, no, we started with, with sculptural... Um, and relief work, ending with painting, sandwiching um, two shows which uh, depart from traditional mediums. So, what did you um, what did you make of the what was the, was this show enriched by um, its um, the, the the source for its vocabulary, or is this another case of disconnect? Well. Um that's a tough question because I read the press release several times and got very little out of it. But, um, you know, how do I put this? I mean, I'm a great partisan of Joseph Albers's work. So <laughs> when I went through this show, I had, was making inevitable comparisons to the kind of work and testing and variation and, the, and indeed the kind of scientism of his own practice in trying to understand perception as a kind of rigorous testing of habits in the world. How do we think we see the world and how do we actually experience that vision? Um, you know, what's the kind of, op the relation of optics to perception to cognition? And I feel like her work was doing some of that. I don't know if it was um, able to create a kind of discursive field around that, either in the press release or you know, in a way, abstraction always has to argue itself in words. Otherwise, you know, many painters of the 20th century feared becoming merely decorative. And I think abstraction, either through critics or through the artist itself, has to have a strong um, discursive 
you know, undertow to be able to persuade the viewer about what really you are seeing. And I think in particular I like the, the work that you saw at an oblique angle that was the 40 um, uh, strips of, of white paint that were subjected to the sun. And like Albers, um, she wrote on the side of the canvas the different paints in a very kind of scientific way, as though you were, you know, using these as variables and then using the variables, to, you know, to, to experiment, to, to really try to, you know, to think about this possibility of variation. Um, I mean, Albers did that on the back side of his canvases as these recipes, but, you know, hers are visible from the side. And it's almost as though you can be an artist, too, that you can participate in the next step of this kind of experimentation in a way that, um, that Joseph Albers... Um, argued, but I, I don't know if the work argued that enough, and whether the press release is the place that, that happens, or whether there has to be some kind of, you know, and, and maybe we're doing that here, and that's good enough, but sometimes I feel like the, the work may not work hard enough to separate itself from the decorative. Right. Was that a problem for you, Marjorie, or did you feel that she's found uh, a rich, valid source of uh, vocabulary or, or conceptual or structure in in the um, uh, sign, in the how, what do we call it the imaging of um, uh, molecular structures? Um, both is the answer to your question. Um, uh, some of the works, maybe two of the works, I thought enacted their own proposals quite well. Uh, there was a work called Density One, which um, uh, showed its fades as part of the, um, shall we say, the composition. In other words, if degradation of pigments and also, um, well, let me finish, I'm sort of interrupting myself. If the degradation or the, uh, of pigments is, in fact, the material process we are to observe, then her paintings ought to demonstrate that. Um, sometimes they did, and sometimes she was, I think, diverted to um, doing warps and color wheels, which belonged to another discourse or another set of vocabularies. In other words, I think she got distracted um, and by, by other possibilities. They're not about color wheels. They're about the fugitive properties of all the materials and techniques we work with. And that's a profound, again, it's a kind of post-minimal uh, domain here. Uh, you don't need uh, um, much reminder when you think of Robert Smithson, but also uh, the fugitive properties of, shall we say, digital technology or JPEGs which are a nightmare for all of us, but what if we took that as a positive domain for exploration? I think her, her field of inquiry is quite rich. I think um, not so much the scientific, you know, I'm doing endocrinology but in paint or something like that, but I think working with uh, the process of decay and degradation uh, in, mater in material terms is, is a live wire and is not exhausted. Um, but some of the works seem either distracted by other possibilities or, as often happens with all of us, we get so myopic when doing our art that we think the art is explaining itself when it isn't. You know, I, don't, you know, I consider that, that she thought that once she had that formula for how stains 
um, shall we say, um, propagate despite one's ability to control them. I thought when, I think that she thought once she had that, it would communicate the depth of her intentions, and I don't think it did. Right. Uh, David, um, stains. So Marjorie has investigated um, oh. the, the idea of stains in terms of decay, in terms of the... Um, the, 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 the technical, but also the vocabulary of it being, being informed by vocabulary that comes from, uh, from medicine. Um, yeah. Do you think that this is a sort of abstract, uh, there's, there's sometimes abstract art finds a depictive subject abstractly in systems from other discourses. Do you think, do you think uh, her stains are, do, do, when you see her stains, are you thinking more about Helen Frankenthaler or endocrinology? I would reiterate Marjorie's point, I'm afraid, but in a stronger way. It seemed to me that these were warming up exercises for making paintings. And I mean, oddly enough, because I was there, I thought about you. And I thought, well, you or me or all of us, any writer, you sit there. And I mean, some people have a cup of tea. Some people have a stiff drink. Some people eat an apple. Some people, I mean, but those things are external to the writing because in the end, when we send you a review, we have to send you a text that scans it. You don't care whether it was an apple or a pear or whatever. And I thought this show, it was all this sort of like she's getting ready to paint. And I wanted to say, but where are the paintings? You know, I mean, these are just sort of the, the kind of warming up exercises. Mm-hmm. And as paintings, I mean, they're fun to look at, but as paintings, you know, they're not... David, you're, you're professed... Uh, uh, fanatical supporter of uh, Joseph Albers. Now, Albers is often accused of presenting what are sort of like color test cards or um, something that's uh, very austerely conceptual, and yet um, the eye can luxuriate in those, those squares in Albers. Um, do, do you feel that she's heir to, to that, or in some way, that um, uh, they could be, it's actually possible to, to be, as David suggests, sort of warm-ups and tests, but also actually be an end in themselves? Well, I mean, there are many heirs to Albers. I mean, he was a great teacher. <laughs> and in certain ways, I feel like the, 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 the legacy of Albers is more in, in folks like Rauschenberg and Ray Johnson that were his students, in which variation is sort of played out in the realm of the social and in, in ways you sort of test your perception one against the other, Rauschenberg's Factum One, Factum Two, or uh, Ray Johnson's Modicos, and and perhaps the inheritors of Albers as color theory, or you know, as a sort of colorist, have never quite been able to imbue the work with that same charge of, of of a kind of okay. First of all, maybe in this case, there's some continuity with Albers in the sense that there's no masterpieces in an Albers. You know, this is a constant exploration of how we often think when we are looking at something, we know what we see. So we often go, oh, that's a you know, gray jacket, and we forget that it's relative according to you know, conditions that are themselves sometimes social or you know, relative to perception that is changing in the world. And I think that that, that kind of, you know, that sort of richness of the abstractionist project, and Albers wasn't the only one, I think Mondrian Malevich, another early 20th century you know, geometric abstractionists were trying to do that, but I, in a way, I, I kind of always feel that it, you know, that that kind of work in, I don't know, in, in sort of 
ab geometric abstraction that happens today, you know, I, I sort of want to be convinced that they're you know, taking on the mantle of those early geometric abstraction projects and sort of furthering that project mm -hmm. too and not merely, you know, sort of allowing that work that was done already to, you know, to just sort of exist there as the pre necessary precondition but not really the kind of next step. And in that sense, I do think that other kinds of or sort of less expected, you know, avenues of, of that inheritance, not just of Albers, but you know, through people like Rauschenberg or Ray Johnson, in which there was this real, you know, encounter with repetition and seriality and what it means to, you know, to, to think that things look the same when they're not and how often we go through our life making judgments based on those same kinds of um, experiences of the snap judgment and that perception is much richer and should be richer, so. Right, right. So let's bring our audience in on the last two shows we've looked at, uh, Navarro and um, uh, Chartier. Um, and, and, and hear either what you made of those specific shows and those experiences. I'd love to hear, um, uh, as nobody on the panel rallied completely around either of those shows, if, if somebody would like to make some spirited uh, uh, apologia for, for those shows, it would be very, very welcome. Um, or else the issues that they both raise of uh, discrepancy between... Um, source of vocabulary or uh, intended um, that the politics of, of, the, of, of the, the intention or the intended politics uh, and its disconnect from the gallery experience. Uh, uh, no partisans of these, <laughs> of these practices. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Christina Key, one well, oh. Critical writer. Thanks very much. Um, as you can say, the conversation raised so many interesting points. Oddly enough, in this panel, I didn't quite get a sense, um, the way one usually does, of whether people straightforwardly liked or didn't like the shows. Um, and that's a great thing in that it was because I think a lot of, you know, richer points were being raised than just gut reaction. But, uh, I mean, I guess I could ask, say, for the last show. I, I'm curious... I think people discussed whether the works were successful, mm. whether they mm. corresponded to their own terms, but I'm just curious some of the likes and dislikes. I didn't feel on this panel that anybody absolutely adored any of the shows or that anybody hated them. I guess I just would almost take the conversation down a notch and wondering if there were mm. any thumbs up. Okay, thumbs up, thumbs down. Points out of ten. Caesar says. Yeah. Yeah. Michelin stars. <laughs> I, I hope, speaking for myself, that my verdict on the last two shows is it's fairly similar. Yeah. I preferred Chartier marginally. I, um, I found Chartier a, a great pleasure to look at, uh, but not for too long. And I mean, it just seemed, well, not for too long because it didn't actually satisfy because um, there, was, there was no, uh, because there was uh, an intellectual foundation, but it required extraneous research. And therefore, the more research one had to do to find out what generates these, yeah. the, these patterns, the more painful it is that it's not inherent sure. in the pattern. But um, yeah. just as decor, I thought it was nice, and I thought that um, as decor, the, the, the Navarro was not so nice, but, but was fun. Um, and um, so that was, I, that's, I didn't really have a great stake. I wasn't very invested in either of these shows. And I, I, think, I think most, uh, we didn't need to say thumbs up, thumbs down. I think yeah. maybe, yeah. you know, but they are both valuable things to talk about um, at this panel because of the issues they raise. Is that I 
take issue with that um, position on criticism. Uh, when I teach criticism in seminar, I go to great lengths to separate criticism from opinion and from liking or disliking things. That criticism is investigative and reveals one's own subjectivities, but puts those subjectivities also in the same position for investigation as one would put positions not held by the interlocutor. I think one of the problems with so-called art criticism is that there's very little of it. Uh, there's very little critical thinking wherein knowledge of the field, analytic and stylistic skills, and some complexity can be brought to bear on the creation of objects when, where we mean sometimes the nexus of social forces, sometimes uh, uh, consistent stylistic form, etc. We desperately need art criticism, which is to say, informed dialogue and discourse. Is that... Um, uh, yes. Uh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you. You were Use the mic. I'm going to make my question a little more complicated. Be good. Use the mic, please. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, when you say art criticism, do you mean art criticism for the sake of the artist's talent and soul, or do you mean art criticism for the sake of trying to sell his art? And this is, this is this the, the second question, which is what I didn't intend. I intended to make the second question the first question, except that I listened to you yeah. again. Um, when there I is, saw a there is no such thing as art criticism to sell things. That's well, called, oh, that's called salesmanship, sure. or art. Or sometimes art appreciation. In my in in the dark underbelly of my career, yes, I wrote for House and Garden, and I once approached Martin Feller and said, "This magazine doesn't even tolerate art appreciation," and he said, "We have to speak." Well, all right. Let me let me start the second question, which was going to be the first question until I listen to you. Okay. Which is, you, I, we all just viewed a number of artworks on the screen. I happen to like them, not 100% every one of them. So it brings, brings me to another to the point which I'm going to say right now. When a author of a novel or a poet goes to have and try to have his works published. He goes, it, he goes to an editor. And the editor may or may not say, well, I don't like this, fix that, change this, and it's fine. Does the artist go to an art editor, and will the editor say, well, I like this, but I think you should change that? How does that, is there an analogy between does this happen, or is the art Does this world, happen? Should this is happen? Is the visual art world different from the world of the person who creates poetry and okay. novels as opposed to art? We're, we're gonna, the panel will take this question. Yeah. I think all of us should answer. Did I make myself clear? Yeah. You did? Excellent. Yeah. I like the second question. We'll, we'll yeah. leave the yeah. soul and the selling out of it, but okay. we'll answer the second question. That was so, so 
surrender the mic, and then yeah. we will yeah. uh, answer the question. Yeah, uh, no, I think Martin. it's I think it's a great question. I think yeah. part of what we're saying with the last two artists is they were not well served by their galleries. That is the gap between our ex- at least let me people agree our experience of their art and what's claiming in the press releases seems to be rather large and whatever the mechanism who was ever in charge there we don't know exactly but that's you see and then to go back to Christina's point that's really to be quite critical of these shows maybe you see if the if the Casman uh, show had been presented differently it would have seemed more effective it was this gap that for me at least, was then the problem because I felt there was a kind of pretentiousness to it. The press release uh, in all four cases was was lacking, sometimes because I tried too hard, uh, sometimes because it was actually, um, you know, um, uninformed, uh, not not in, in art history. There is a role for the press release, and it isn't only selling. It is a kind of, or should be a kind of baseline for information about the art, assuming that it is uh, embedded in several contexts, one of which is art history, another might be uh, sociology, um, but uh, there, there is definitely a role for the press release and art appreciation. As for your second question, yes, there is the equivalent of an art editor. Uh, some in, in art schools there is nothing but uh, kind of uh, ongoing critique. And after art school, as I actually I advise my students, become friends with somebody more intelligent than you, whom you do not necessarily like, but whose critique you respect. That person will be invaluable and will help you grow. But even beyond that, yes, there are people who pay studio visits, etc., uh, and the 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 point there is not flattery. I mean, it really is, or should be, a kind of engagement with the work, not the artist. That's where the confusion comes in. Yes, I was about to say yes. The studio visit is the equivalent of the editorial manuscript, um, and uh, it raises all kinds of. I mean, it's it's a it's a thorny issue because for me because um, you know. Clement Greenberg was, uh, and, and his milieu, really valued the studio visit inordinately and, and set a, a very rigorous um, procedure for, you know, mm-hmm. you have 10 or 12 paintings and this, da, da, da. Now, um, many, stu- many artists find this enormously uh, enriching to go through that, that kind of um, filter of a peer whose objectivity and, and subjectivity equally are trustworthy, are indeed intermeshed. Um, And yet, um, not to get into the whole uh, historical debate about uh, uh, formalism and and, and second-generation abstract expressionism, there was um, a kind of... uh, uh, the, 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 The role of a critic actually saying, cut it here, don't do this, do this, this prescriptive kind of criticism raised an, an enormous kind of uh, problem, and yet the opposite of that problem is just as acute, which is you sit there, you know there's a problem with the work, and you say, oh, I look forward to your next show, let me know when you're having it, and then they put the work up, bang, or you ignore it. Um, the, the silence is just as cruel as saying, 
do this, do that, do the other. And yet they both seem um, dubious interventions. Um, what, 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 what do you make? What, does, what, 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 would, um, what would Albers make? What would you make? And are they the same thing, Ava? <laughs> Sorry to pigeonhole you now as the, as the, as the Albers mouthpiece. Um, no, I mean, I think that, well, there's been a lot of ink spilled and often by critics about some kind of possible obsolescence of what that, what it means to, you know, to be a critic today. And I think this panel is a nice anecdote to that because often you write things and you don't have any response and you get paid very little and what, you know, you're not really participating in this sort of, you know, and, and by choice in this kind of very elevated uh, market-driven um, contemporary economy, but it, it has a, you know, it, some people have said that the role of the critic has been displaced by the collector and that, you know, that kind of conversation is unfortunately um, for us and possibly I would think for the, you know, for what's going on with the work itself in contemporary art happening, um, you know, on a yacht in the Mediterranean, you know, <laughs> artist and collector together at last. And I don't know, you know, where, where we find ourselves in that economy because, you know, even if you have some nice venues for where you, you know, can write and you have good editors and, you know, you really, you know, feel like you're supporting the work you know, we were talking about this before. I mean, often a gallery will circulate a really bad review, like go out of their way to no. email it. Like, here's some press, you know? Just mm. nobody reads it somehow. Or it's just mm. they, they kind of just feel like they're, you know, sliding it by. And, and I wonder, mm. you know, where that puts us as critics in terms of, you know, who's, who are we really, really writing for? And, you know, what is this, you know, the necessary discursive field may not be in our hands. I mean, not to be too elegaic, because this is a larger conversation that's been happening, in the, you know, in the last several years as the market for contemporary art has, you know, has really sort of taken, <laughs> taken over and people really use art as a speculative financial, you know, boon. Yes. Fantastic. Well, I think we've... Thank you very much for that question because it does that rare thing at the panel where we step aside from the four shows we've been thinking about <laughs> to have a, a, a metacritical moment of, of, of addressing a bigger issue. So hopefully see a lot of you on May the 6th and a big thank you please to my guests. And David, if I can, a big thank you to you for organizing this all, Great. making it possible. Thank you.